I'd like to begin tonight's talk by quoting the Buddha. This might be paraphrased. <laughs> the mind by nature is radiant and pure. By nature, it is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements or hindrances that we suffer. It is because of the visiting forces that are named defilements or hindrances that we suffer. I think that, like no one else, did the Buddha inquire into the source of human mind and how it's possible to get caught in bondage like we all do. And his many years of teaching revolved around really noticing again and again and emphasizing this aspect of understanding how we get caught. In fact, uh, when he was asked philosophical questions, often he wouldn't reply. He was quite (laughs) pragmatic in his way of teaching, down to earth. It said that uh, a kid that was seven years old would understand his teaching because he would always reflect the person back to its source to understand how it is that the suffering is caused. And nothing else mattered to his understanding because he was really noticing how concepts can be themselves a hindrance to seeing the truth and to seeing the nature of reality. And so another quote of the Buddha is said, to end all suffering, one needs to develop a mind that doesn't cling. Out of that non-attachment or non-clinging, one will see the truth. The Dhamma will just unfold in a very organic way. And the whole purpose of our being here together during these two weeks or this month is to really see again and again for ourselves this Dhamma unfolding, the truth of this reality. And it's inspiring. Like I said this morning to you, it's super inspiring to know (laughs) that there are people here and elsewhere that are still seekers of the truth. I think that before we come to practice, we do not see, I don't think that in my family, (laughs) there's an idea of knowing how to understand suffering in a way that uh, they can free their minds from suffering. Because there isn't this wisdom of seeing that the cause, the true cause of suffering, comes from our own minds. The suffering eventually is known, of course, but it comes from outer circumstances. And so that's why it's such a precious situation when we can really experience, and that's the great wonder of Dharma practice, that there's a practice that one can go to and see how it unfolds, really see the wisdom aspect of, yes, this practice does work if we really give ourselves to it. 
So we discover new possibilities, not at the level of idea or thought, but at the level of reality, really giving this extraordinary power of possibility of recognizing, simply that, of recognizing the force of what is emerging. And in our inner life, meeting the sense impressions, meeting the thoughts, the emotions, and ourself, basically, everything will manifest and unfold in its own way, in its own time. Now, very often, just with our ordinary life, we have a sense of urgency that is misplaced with practice, meaning that we want to get over with, right? (laughs) Spiritual achievement, um, one month, two weeks, and yeah, right? (laughs) There's the wanting (laughs) for spiritual attainment and uh, to not do the work fully. Unfortunately, (laughs) the Buddha uh, applied himself to this for many lifetimes. So it's to put in perspective the idea of seeing the wanting mind in relationship to spiritual attainment, just like we have it in our ordinary life, and to notice it, and to really bring forth that sense of aspiration to come back to just allowing ourselves to meet the truth of what is, because it won't happen if it comes through wanting. We also begin to meet the resistances, the torments of the mind, very clearly, (laughs) in a way that certainly our lives are not able to, because in our lives we're so busy. Of course, there's a type of suffering, but the one that we know here is much deeper than the one that we usually know at the surface, because we're deepening the process of seeing. Very naturally, we really sense and experience the truth of the suffering, this first noble truth, and how much it is painful. And even if we've had years of practice, you know, we may say, okay, the torments of the mind, the hindrances, you know, I've heard about them. (laughs) That's a talk I've heard a thousand million times, maybe, if I'm a practitioner that has been maybe 15 or 20 years, there's always going to be a hindrance talk, right? It's going to come up. (laughs) Why? (laughs) There's a reason for that. Because this is exactly where we get caught. These are the forces, exactly what the Buddha said, the visitors in the mind, in the heart, in the body that we meet over and over again and that catch us. And just like Marcia mentioned in her opening in the last talk, under the Bodhi tree, the Bodhisattva to be Buddha was faced just before his full enlightenment with what? Doubt. One of the hindrances. So imagine <laughs> that you're going to be able to reach full enlightenment and maybe the, just the moment before that instant, 
there can be a visitor, which we call an unfriendly visitor, an unwanted guest. <laughs> so this is what I'd like to talk about tonight. Now, it's important to know that this word hindrance is often misunderstood because um, the word hindrance, well, of course, says that it hinders the pure nature of the mind, the radiance, this shining quality of the mind when these forces are not seen, when we do not see sense-desire, anger or aversion, sloth and torpor, agitation or worry in the mind, and doubt, then these forces do act. Or they're suppressed. So there's a very different way that in practice we'll be able to notice them without them becoming hindrances. Meaning that when we see them for what they are and not what we believe them to be, they lose their power. Because just like clouds cannot hinder the blue sky, right? we know that the sky is blue. Sometimes clouds come and just cover over the blue sky. Does it affect the nature of the sky itself? No. This is exactly the same thing. These are forces that, when they're not seen, they'll definitely cause suffering. When they're seen and seen so fully, they will not affect the quality of the nature of the mind. And that's why we can work actually, because if it did belong to the nature of mind, it would be very hard and difficult to uncover, unveil these veils. So it is due to ignorance that there isn't a understanding. Wisdom, the opposite mental factor of ignorance, will definitely allow us to see them just for what they are. And so... In fact, I think that we can consider the hindrances to be the stepping stones in our practice. And that we can notice their appearance and disappearance as they come and they go. Mindfulness, which is a pure quality of presence, meditative presence, pure mindfulness which doesn't have greed, hatred, or delusion in it, is not tainted by greed, hatred, and delusion. The pure seeing, pure mindfulness, is able to unveil these forces. And it's not a mistake from our part when these are present. You know, they may be unfriendly, and it's true that they're harder to work with and it's difficult at times to really just say, okay, mindfulness, (laughs) and mindfulness just see uh, what there is. Um, They need certainly some work, much more than uh, the 
peaceful states, when there's bliss, when there's calm, when there's uh, bliss in the mind, then of course <laughs> we like those, right? So we want more of this. Wanting is very present. In fact, I think that the hindrances contain a greater potential for liberation than the states that are just lovely to bathe in. They can track us too. So it's important to see. At every step, there's a possibility of uh, being hooked on the path. So in fact, when we meet these states and we know how to work with these mind states, there's definitely a progress in our practice. This is from the Dalai Lama. He says, nothing, absolutely nothing, is not worthy of our attention. Remember that. He says, often the difficulties that you encounter in your practice are the places that most wake us up. There's a value in that statement. The places that are the most difficult are the places where we can most wake us up. Not suppressing, not acting them out. So I'd like to talk a little bit about each one of them. The first, of course, is sense desire. It's the wanting in the mind. And I'm sure we've all met the wanting in the mind today for one reason and another. It's the mind that grasps at sense pleasure, really uh, engages into uh, indulging into pleasantness, sounds, tastes, thoughts, fantasies in the mind, stories that we make up. And the mind over and over again is seduced by what it, it sees. It's lost in seduction in one way or another. It can be about people, it can be about our stories, past memories, very simple sense experience. Now this type of wanting, of desire, is really based on the feeling that something inside is lacking. There's some sense there of feeling incomplete. And we think then that if we are going to get whatever it is that will fulfill this sense of lack of completeness, the feeling is the neediness in a way you can say, then we will end that incompleteness, that feeling of lack for something, and that the pain will simply go away. And we've certainly noticed this, you know, on retreat, that yes, I go for the cup of tea, or I go for that nap because I'm really sleepy, or that piece of, second piece of uh, chocolate cake <laughs> because I'm really greedy and I'm miserable in my practice, and so... I'm going to find some relief, for sure, for that moment. So now relief is not the release of pain. 
it's a momentary experience. And we can really sense that sense of, if there's a little wisdom, once we've had it, it's very short, that moment of (laughs) attainment or relief. Um, So the wanting mind is born out of craving. It's this sense of hunger that creates pain and that becomes endless if it's not seen through. We can go for it and wanting, in fact, increases wanting if it's not looked at in a proper way. And the perspective of really seeing it increase can make us really feel more and more in pain. So we've had probably, you know, some sense of this craving, if not all the time, maybe. Craving for contact with people. We're very alone here. Craving for uh, meeting our dear ones, maybe our close ones. Craving for some sense of connection where the sense of neediness of feeling of incompleteness can be fulfilled. Now it's important to know that the desire can also come from a place of wisdom. There definitely is a desire to be here. At least part of ourself is has this wholesome desire to wish other beings well, for example. Is the desire to go to sleep because the body needs some rest or food because it needs to sustain itself. Therefore, this is a need which is completely normal. But it's not born out of this wanting craving. So it's helpful to notice in one's practice which type of desire is manifesting. So rather than nurture that wanting mind through getting the different things that the mind manifests, turn the mind on itself to look at the source of the craving, to really, in a very raw way, felt sense, know the wanting itself because that's exactly where we're going to understand this force of craving. Investigate into the desire to understand from it. This is a quote from Tenzin Palmo, the English nun in the Tibetan tradition. She's straightforward. <laughs> It is one of the great lies propagated by our culture that getting more and more physical and material prosperity, even emotional, will lead to greater and greater happiness. This simply is not true. Genuine happiness lies in not wanting. Endless wanting is such a burden to the mind. If we really wish to be happy, and create happiness for those around us. Our task is to clean 
and order our minds. That's exactly what we're doing here. We're cleaning <laughs> the ground <laughs> of the mind. And so it's extraordinary to see, and I've seen this for myself just because I was on retreat just like you are <laughs> quite a number of times, um, to be able to be up here <laughs> requires uh, hopefully uh, a number of hours of looking inwardly. And what I saw was that the intensity of, of the desire does not at all depend on the object that we're going for. But, and that we so much invest in, you know, if we only get that thing, then of course I'll be happy. <laughs> the intensity, the felt sense of that desire is only related to the degree of wanting that is present, to the degree of attachment to wanting that is present. And so that is really extraordinary, not when you hear it from me, <laughs> but when you experience that difference, that it's not the thing that matters, but it's to really sense that degree of holding in the mind, in the body, of attachment that is present, and to stay there, to really face that attachment, that holding, in a way that we'll see through. And maybe what helps, in a way, is when we notice that we want something, the tenth cup of tea, <laughs> or the third piece of cake, to have some sense of self-restraint, to be able to meet the wanting itself, to really sense that craving inside of us and not go for that experience. It's the only way that you will meet the source of the pain, of the suffering. Now, to meet it, not to again get rid of it, but to see it, completely, fully, with that pure mindfulness that Marcia talked about, a non-judgmental attention. So then you can expect really to meet pain, no doubt. <laughs> You'll meet that sense of unpleasantness of the craving itself. But you'll also see that it's not inherent to the mind and that it passes. Even though we didn't go for that extraordinary experience that we think will do it for us. It just passes. And that is so liberating because if we can do it once, <laughs> we can do it again. So this is how it works. With wanting. And it's often really happening at the level of the felt sense, meaning that you really will be able to feel the energy of wanting, that leaning forward. And if it's experiential, it's going to be happening in the body also, that, you know, it can be very subtle. I mean, really, <laughs> very subtle. But to, to meet yourself in that space... 
what an insight. That is insight knowledge leading to freedom. When it stops, when there's this absence of wanting, even if it's for a second that you've had a glimpse of not wanting, this is a momentary moment of freedom. what freedom is, freedom from the suffering of craving. Even a moment. The second torment of the mind is exactly the opposite force, and that is aversion or anger. And it's the mind that pushes away experience because of unpleasantness. It's the mind that doesn't like to feel the pain. And so it manifests as usually as non-acceptance of what is happening, what's present in the mind. So it's the desire not to want, but to be separated from what is unpleasant. To isolate whatever it is, body pain, we've talked quite a lot about body pain, isolate that experience of body pain or emotional pain that we believe is unbearable, and then we'll be fine. If only (laughs) that pain wouldn't be present, my meditation would be really just fine, wouldn't it? (laughs) And so we see the force of aversion at work. Another type of craving, craving for not wanting what is emerging. And so here I've talked this morning quite a lot about how we meet this pure resistance. It's a pure contraction, a resistance, a way that um, it becomes really obvious that we want to get rid of something. And it manifests in different forms. You know, These five categories have a lot of subsets to them. So it can, you know, it manifests as a little frustration, irritation to the full blown up of rage, rage and and can be agonizing. It can be a very slight annoyance. It can be that we vent anger, for example. It can be that um, there's fear. Fear is a big one and it's a withdrawn aversion, a type where we freeze, but it is a sense of not being able to just accept what is. There's also boredom. When we're bored with our breath, we're seeing a thousand breaths today, and of course we think that the breath is boring to watch. There is no boring breath. (laughs) It's how we relate to the experience of breath that brings up boredom, meaning that there isn't a full connection. When there's boredom, there's definitely not a pure mindfulness. So not to judge ourselves for it, but just to watch. Boredom is just a distance, a lack of connection with what is present. So we really have a sense that we just need to isolate 
to separate from what we don't like, what we've decided is unpleasant, and then we'll be fine. Here again, it's really seeing the relationship of not taking so much time as to notice which experience it is that is making you feel awful or slightly on the edge, but rather to return, to turn back the mind and to look at aversion itself. What is the relationship to this experience, to the boredom, to the fear, to the anger? What is it that is happening within this space? And we'll often notice that over the aversion or the mind state that is painful, there's another layer of reactivity, which is just a second layer where we react to the aversion. And it's a loop. There's a resistance to the aversion and to the feeling, the aversion itself. And so reaction to a reaction, which means that <laughs> we feel even more reactive and probably pain increases. When I can't stand what's, uh, what I'm seeing and I can't stand being aversive to what I'm seeing, <laughs> I'm really caught there. <laughs> it's painful. And the Buddha, uh, in a very precise, clear way, offered a teaching on this. He says, When touched with a feeling of pain, the ordinary, uninstructed person sorrows, grieves, and laments, beats his breast becomes distraught, so he feels two pains, physical and mental, just as if they were to shoot a man with an arrow and right afterward were to shoot him with another one, so that he would feel the pains of two arrows. There's nothing much that we can do with the pain of the first arrow. But definitely, the second arrow, which is the relationship of the mind to what is happening, can definitely be avoided. Get this? How we react, how we relate to what we're seeing when there's pain, when there's aversion. And this works for every single type of pain. Is it possible to really just feel what's present? And if there's an overlay, the resistance to the resistance, that second arrow, the mental pain, if that is present, then that's what needs to be seen. It's really important to watch if there's another layer of reactivity. And the more we'll be practicing, the more we'll see the mind at work. Really see how it is that these causes and conditions are fueled by the relationship that we have to experience. And to really trust awareness in the way that 
It's a process that will unfold in accord to the truth of the Dhamma. The only thing that we can help is to help the beautiful quality of awareness. So all that I've said here is just to stay aware with what is. So to feel the resistance. I don't want to feel this pain. I'm sick of it. Not again. All these thoughts that we have again and again are thoughts that will have a felt sense of aversion. And to really notice how much we feed the second arrow. There's a way that we do this, and I've seen it for myself, how there's so much aversion that we have the tendency of venting anger, you know, blaming somebody else. Like, wow, here the floor is really creaky. Can't they walk without making any noise? <laughs> and we're all in that situation, aren't we? <laughs> we're going to vent the anger and blame the other person, and then we're the next person to walk out there <laughs> and cause that noise. Or, I have found that there are spaces where, not many, but there's no noise. Walking in the morning, I tried to see. And so we've got our space, right? It's our space, our <laughs> walking space out there. And we want it. And then we see another yogi using our space. <laughs> How it is incredibly I mean, we're in retreat, so these, <laughs> these things happen and these thoughts happen in the mind because, you know, it's just like <laughs> anger is just manifesting in the context with, in, with which we're living in. And so to notice, and I've seen it for myself, how painful, does it bring pain to the other person? No, they don't even know about it. How much pain is created within our own mind? <laughs> You know, I'm going to get them and I'm going to tell them and all the stories we have, all these stories we make up about other yogis. <laughs> and the Buddha here says again, holding on to anger is like grasping at a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else, which <laughs> may happen, and you're the one who gets burned. Do we see that we're the one who gets burned? Not really. If we really looked, we might, you know, see that it's really happening here. And it's only happening here. So, staying present. The third is sleepiness. And there's not much to say about it. (laughs) (laughs) Sloth and torpor um, happen when we're just tired. Often when we've done a lot of effort, and we spend too much energy in wanting to change things <laughs> in our practice, often from doing too much, over-efforting, or using wrong effort, there can come the sense of sloth and torpor. Or we're just tired because maybe we're not adjusting our schedule very well, and it's possible to have that sense of feeling of sloth and torpor. And here again, I think it's very simple to notice the felt sense of 
what it feels like to be sleepy. Rather than, I know that there are many antidotes that are offered for these hindrances. Um, and they have some value, but I don't tend to give them right away, at least, especially not in the context of a retreat, because often we have the sense, and the person here asks me, what is, what is the antidote to <laughs> restlessness or to sloth and torpor? And so I'm sure that in the mind of the person, it's to use the antidote to get rid of the cause of the pain, to get rid of the sloth and torpor, the sleepiness. Will we know what it means to really feel the sense, desire, the aversion, the agitation, if we right away use the antidote? I don't think so. It may, again, bring a relief. Um, so it's not that antidotes aren't good, but especially in the context of a retreat, I think it's much more valuable to really notice again and again within the space of awareness what is causing this visitor to be present. And so that we learn about them so that we can free the mind from them. So sloth and torpor comes because we've just arrived and maybe we're simply tired and we need some adjustment. Another reason for sloth and torpor to be present, and it's often important to watch this, is the imbalance between concentration and energy. And we talk about the sinking mind, which is definitely uh, when you've got a sense of, ooh, the mind is sinking, and it's dull, and, and there's not really clarity, alertness to our mindfulness. And that's just because there is concentration, so there's focus, but not enough energy. And so it really feels dull. And so what do we do then? We raise the level of energy, meaning that we bring some interest so that there's a little more alertness and freshness of mind. Those times when you really do feel that sense of thinking mind, it's helpful to do a walk that's a little energizing and um, to refresh yourself and to really help yourself with interest. The factor of investigation is helpful then. Another way that we could really notice sloth and torpor arise is when there's avoidance of meeting the emotional states. There's something underneath there like fear or uh, dread maybe. Really some state that we do not want to meet because there's certainly the basic feeling of fear. And so the mind tends to avoid meeting the existential fear, for example, and so it goes into drifting and gently, gently goes to sleep. So to notice if that's the case, just to feel again, it may be not the case, absolutely not, but it may be. So just to, to inquire and more to look at is it just simply sleepiness due to fatigue, tiredness? Or is there an emotional state that might be present 
and to feel that in the body, noticing it. And again, not to change it, just to respect the rhythm of... It's important to respect the rhythm and the pace of these mind states, meaning that there are times when we will want to force the process. And if these um, mind states that are difficult, they're tormenting, they also have been incredible protectors for ourselves in one way or another. When we needed them, maybe as a child, to really protect us from danger, from outer danger. And therefore, our emotional states may be appearing. And it's helpful to respect that. But it doesn't mean that we need to avoid them. We can really stay in contact and in connection at an appropriate level. And to really respect the resistance. That is also helpful to say. Accepting what is. And so awareness is absolutely not about forcing the process or opening up in a way that there isn't respect for the holdings and the difficulties that we meet. Quite the contrary. If we allow the process to just unfold. The fourth is restlessness or agitation. And that's just the opposite mind state of thought and torpor. It's when there's this monkey mind (laughs) that's jumpy. And usually it happens when there's um, a lot of thoughts. There may be restlessness in the body. And certainly there's a tendency to um, rush forward. In one way or another, there's a sense of having too much energy. And so here there's two ways. I've seen for myself that at times it's really helpful to give a lot of spaciousness to that restlessness, especially if it's physical, meaning that you go out and you practice outside and you really use here the beautiful sky and uh, spaciousness that there is to allow for that restlessness to have space. And so to practice with inner and outer spaciousness. I've seen it also that I've done the exact opposite attitude. And especially when it's around thoughts that are becoming obsessive and that keep on really manifesting, that we see them circling and circling and there's loops of thoughts, to narrow the focus completely, narrow the focus of attention in a way that we have a microscopic attention. And for me, for example, it's the fingers just touching one another and to really stay completely focused so that the mind does find a place of protection. And that's really what I mean by that. It can settle down. It can really rest within that spot, one spot. And um, it feels that it's protected. 
Now, if we have a very clear um, connection with the anchor, maybe the breath, then definitely here come back to the breath for some time just so that there's this sense of anchor again. Restlessness in the mind is often around the judging mind. How much we evaluate, how much we think about our practice, how much we are thinking our meditation rather than meditating. (laughs) And thinking about meditating is not meditating. And so we might want to use the thinking because we think it can help us, but it's very, very counterproductive. And it leads me to talk about the fifth one, which is doubt. And doubt is exactly that mind state of great vulnerability, I would say, especially when it's um, in relationship to ourself, not being able to sense that there's a place where we can rely on trusting the process of the practice or trusting ourself. And so that doubt is very tricky because it's often with doubt that we won't engage with the other torments of the mind. We won't engage with aversion. We won't engage with restlessness, wanting, desire. And so it's very helpful. And often when we're totally uh, at a lost to notice, oh, wow, there's really doubt manifesting. It's just doubt. (coughs) Now, it's important to question at times, and I've talked about reflection, but doubting mind has nothing to do with a wise reflection. It's this constant judging, evaluating of how well we're doing or how bad we're doing. how we're a good yogi, how we're not a good yogi, how um, maybe there's confusion and uh, we can place maybe the doubt in, is this the right practice for me? You know, no, maybe I should do Zen. You know, with Zen, I'm sure that I'd already be enlightened. (laughs) Or, you know, maybe it's not Vipassana or maybe I should do another 10 years of therapy (laughs) before I... I come to a month of practice meditation, you know? <laughs> All these issues about myself that I'm not seeing. I should talk to someone. <laughs> that is doubt. <laughs> and it's not to say that we should not, you know, evaluate at the end of the retreat if this practice has really brought some fruit. Not at all. It's, it's really important that we do. But not during the month or the two weeks because you won't sense the fruit of the wisdom that comes from seeing the nature of the mind. So doubt is often disguised as wisdom, you know, this sense of self-righteousness I know I'm right. I know this isn't (laughs) what I'm supposed to be doing. And so watch it. I mean, watch the mind that has this tendency to linger into into doubt. And it also brings (laughs) this sense of 
uh, hopelessness. I've seen for myself that often hopelessness comes from that space where we're really not in contact. The other states, there's a sense of we're working with what, whatever it is that is happening. But if doubt is, kicks in, it brings a lot of suffering. So recognizing doubt is really helpful. And so, of course, um, qualities like trust and patience and acceptance come along with mindfulness. There's, this is an evidence that uh, qualities like acceptance will simply mature from our staying completely connected with what is present, even confidence and maybe faith which is the opposite of doubt, will emerge just from one moment of seeing clearly. And many of you have said, wow, this practice works. It really, I'm seeing. Even if it was a glimpse, there was a moment of full connection and wisdom was present. And I know that it works. And it's great because that's exactly what the Buddha invited us to do see the cause of suffering, know how to really see what causes suffering and enabling us to end the suffering. What happened in those moments of absence of suffering? The only thing that changed is that there's an absence of clinging. There's just the absence of of attachment, wanting something other than what is, not wanting what is, basically this, the absence of craving. So again, I'll just give an offer a few last steps to, I hope, help you really see um, how we can work with the mind. So the first step is to really see how many times we believe our stories. When our mind says, I'm really tired and I need a nap, Is it true? Is this really true? Check for yourself. Notice that thought. It may be true. It may be not true. I need this cup of tea. Check for yourself from which place this thought is emerging. Is it from a state of running away and avoiding the walking meditation, and especially in a setup like this where you're so free. You know, you're really (laughs) doing your own schedule. So it's, uh, I'd invite you really to not to strive in any way, but to really see from the space of wisdom to notice how it is that when you go for something, is it from a place of wisdom or is there identification. We so often take our thoughts for granted. 
you know, oh yeah, I really, I really need it. <laughs> Don't take your thoughts for granted. Maybe not. Maybe you do not need. So that's the first step. And it's really helpful to see then, oh wow, yeah, it's just desire. And to apply some sense restraint. And to really stay with that force of desire and know it. Know it so well that you see through it. You allow it to be. You allow it to pass. Desire, it's sleepiness, it's agitation, it's judging, there's aversion, whatever it is. Paying attention. And this can really be helpful if it's seen on a momentary basis. It's in the moment. It's not just a nice idea. (laughs) It's really connecting with the experience, the momentary experience that you'll be able to see through the thinking process, to see through the content of what's happening. And then we can really move to the second step, which is exercise restraint, not act them out not suppressing and not acting out, which means that we will not go for it and see what happens. Can the mind stay completely in relationship to what it's meeting? And if not, to really see why not. Notice the resistance, how we are stepping back to really notice what it is that we don't want to see or we don't want to meet. And the third step is to reframe our understanding. And that means that normally, you know, all these experiences are bad states compared to the good states. (laughs) We want the good states, but these really, they're so bad that we don't want to experience them. And sometimes they're bad states and sometimes it feels like I'm the bad meditator Right? or the bad sit, and I feel like I'm a failure, uh, I'm worth nothing, and therefore I've got to get rid of that part of myself that manifests through that feeling of myself being not good. We often fall into that trap of creating a sense of separation between good and bad. So to reframe the understanding to see that it's just the nature of anger, it's the nature of aversion, it's the nature of desire, when it's present, that is feeling that. It's just the nature of that mind state to be present in the field of awareness when it's present. And to do that, You really have to be sincere and honest in your relationship to what you're seeing. And rather than say how bad I feel, what can I learn about this experience? What can I meet? So therefore, then we place wisdom and mindfulness ahead of ourselves, meaning that we place them before the mind state that we're feeling so awful about ourselves and that every one of them is unpleasant. 
So we're a step ahead of the difficult emotions or the difficult torments of the mind. And we, of course, know that every one of them is unpleasant. (laughs) There's no secret. You know, all of these torments of the mind or hindrances are unpleasant. But then you can also ask yourself, you know, we're not practicing for comfort. We would do something else, I'd hope, you know. (laughs) Go on a holiday, go to the beach or whatever (laughs) you like to do. And it's really understandable that we need to reframe our understanding that practice is not leading to comfort. (laughs) It's leading to freedom. And so if we want comfort, we definitely need to go somewhere else. (laughs) Comfort is not our goal. Even if there are moments when we really want this extraordinary pleasant mind state or rapture, bliss in the body, back. It's not about that. It's about really freeing the mind. And so the fourth step is to feel the habit, is to know our habits. And we each probably have a process of conditioning to know where it is that we're hooked Some of us are very prompt to be greedy. (laughs) Other types are more on the aversive level and type. And so we therefore already know, you know, that there are places where we're going to get probably hooked. And so to really notice habits, because they're just habits. We're again and again reproducing habits that we know well conditioning when we're not seeing and how do we see that by really opening the heart and the mind accepting that this is just the conditioning due to certain causes it's not about I and that there's a huge difference when we (laughs) relate to practice in that sense And so to be a little bit concrete, it means that when, if I take the example of anger, there's a huge difference between being angry, thinking about our anger, and being mindful of anger. When we're angry, we're usually completely immersed in the anger, right? When we're angry, we're lost in it. There's no doubt that uh, there's the feeling of it, but we're lost in the feeling of it. Mm-hmm. Thinking about our anger, and we're seeing anger, and it can be the same for desire. Yeah, there's anger there. We know that, the, that there's anger. And the thoughts, what the thoughts do is that usually, I mean most of the time, they justify the anger, Right? They give a sense, oh yeah, I'm right to be angry. I mean, what all that person did to me, and no, no, no. <laughs> whack, 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 whack in the mind. And so thinking about anger is what we do most of the time, justifying. Pretty damn right to be angry. <laughs> Justification really repeats the story again and again. 
That's often where we need to see that we have loops of obsessive thinking around a pattern. It's justification again and again to see it. Being mindful of anger, it really means to step out of the story. We're feeling the anger, but there's an openness to feel what it's like in the body mostly so that we step out of the content and we allow ourselves to really notice as a texture, how does it feel? And we're totally aware, allowing awareness to know exactly what it does to the mind. What does anger or desire or agitation do to the mind? What are the thoughts doing? And we know very directly But we don't believe the thoughts anymore. We're really seeing thoughts as thoughts around anger. And that's called receiving the nature of anger, seeing the nature of anger. Or fear, judgment, knowing it as a dynamic process. Not caught in it. And the fifth and last step is that these don't have any inherent characteristic. They don't last. We can really see that they're impermanent. And I'm sure you're completely convinced about this, you know. (laughs) Where is the sleepiness that was manifesting this morning? Where is this big story that I made up in my mind three days ago? Where is it now? Something else probably has emerged since so many other types of experience have emerged. So there's nothing solid. There's no inherent characteristic to these mind states. They come, they go. The quicker we catch them, the quicker we see them, clearly the less we'll get caught by them. What enables us to see them more quickly awareness (laughs) mindfulness with acceptance and therefore that enables non-identification and it's exactly the whole process of allowing the mind to not cling so it's not denying it's not avoiding it's not suppressing it's not acting out it's just being with what is. No strategies, no manipulation, no interference. And if there is, then we see how we establish a relationship of strategy and manipulation. Really see it. See it all. So I'd like to close with a statement from the Buddha who said, To end all suffering, one needs to develop a mind that clings to nothing not holding on, not pushing away, just staying present with what is and noticing the changing nature of all things. One lives in accord with the truth of the Dhamma. Let's sit for just one second.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.